Y'all, it's almost Halloween, but don't worry, you still have time. Orca has these awesome Halloween tumblers. What's the smaller things called? I don't know what the, the smaller one that you put whiskey in, but they're Halloween themed. And if you go to orcacoolers.com, use code DADSEASON, you will get 20% off your whole order. Whatever you want to get. You want to get tumblers, you want to get coolers, you want to get little things you could drink wine out of that are metal, that are super cool, or you want to get... I have a sweatshirt from Orca that's awesome, but Orca has awesome stuff. Be the envy of other dads in your neighborhood and make those special people in your life happy by getting all sorts of themed Orca Cooler stuff or just anything from Orca Coolers. It keeps everything super cold or super hot, if that's what you want, in the drinkware. But the coolers, and you can put ice in that thing for days and it won't melt. So go to orcacoolers.com, use code DADSEASON. That's code DADSEASON for 20% off your order. Everyone, if you're looking for laser etched glassware at awesome prices, you got to go to our friends at distilleryproducts.com. That's Carson, Janie, Vicky, all the good folks over there. It's about to be Christmas season, so why don't you go over there and order things in? Because you know what? If you're a bourbon group or you're a distillery or you're a store, they make awesome Christmas presents to get some laser etched custom glasses at distilleryproducts.com. Reach out to me. I would be happy to get you in touch with them. Today's show is also sponsored by our friends at Action247.com. And what better season? I mean, it's football season. Hockey started. It is the MLB playoffs. There is no better time to get in on the action with Action247.com, Tennessee's only sports book by Tennesseans for Tennesseans. And you know what you're going to want to do? You're going to want to go there and use code DADS100. They will match up to $100 of your first deposit. But if it's a Friday, which it is today, there is a deposit boost for all new and existing customers. So you can use code DADS100. They'll match up to 400 bucks, And then you can use the Friday code and get an additional boost. NFL football is going on. You know we're going to be in on that. You know we're going to be in on NCAA football. I know Zeke and I have been lax on our picks. We've had some scheduling issues, but we'll pick it back up next week. Go ahead and go to action247.com. Use code DADS100. What you got for me, Zeke Baker? You know, over the weekend, I'm taking the kids to the uh, the downtown park. Cut through uh, you know a couple little neighborhoods here. And um, the boy's like, Dad, that place has got Korean food. Like, do what now, boy? He's like, they got Korean food. I'm like, I, I, you know, I, I don't think so, bud. Not in, um, not in this part of town. I, I just don't think there's any Korean restaurants. But they do. Okay. But they really do, Dad. I'm like, all right. Um, you know, we're gonna drive the same way back when we go home from the park in a little while, and um, you know, you can point it out to me, and we'll see if there's Korean food. I, I just don't think there's any in this part of town. Dad, it said they had soul food. Hello, hello, everyone. My name is John Edwards, and with me, as always, is Zeke Baker. And together, we make the Dad's Drink of Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us part of your day. Hey there, Zeke. What's up, John boy? So did he get Korean barbecue or no from the soul food place? Well, we then had a, a conversation about soul versus soul the city. Then he was like, we'll describe what soul food is if it's not Korean. And... <sighs> I was glad we were at the park, and I was just like, "Son, just just, just go play, Dad. 
Did Dad, you just, Dad's out of words at 4.30 in the evening right now. Fair enough. Welcome to tonight's episode, today's <laughs> episode, whenever you're listening to Dad's Drinking Bourbon. It is a very special episode tonight. We have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Hank Ingram, who started O.H. Ingram River Age Whiskey. Welcome to Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Thanks for having me. How old are you? Because I feel like you are younger than both of us. We, Or at least like you haven't had the stress of having a kid. So you look younger than both of us. Oh, I appreciate that. Podcasts are my favorite medium because I was always told I had a face for radio and by extension podcasts. I'm 31. Oh, you are much younger than us. You have not had the... I used to have hair before I had a kid and then she ripped it all out the first year. I mean, it was already thinning, but she accelerated the process. So hopefully a whiskey company will not do that to you. But congrats on on starting your brand. Congrats on having multiple SKUs. Tell us, everybody, a little bit about yourself. What got you to start a whiskey brand? And your family's been very involved in businesses and been very successful. And you probably went to them and said, hey, I have this awesome idea. So, so tell us a little bit about how that happened and how O.H. Ingram came to be. Well, to start off, um, our family's been in the barge business for over 75 years. I thought I was going to be a towboater my whole life. Um, I just didn't realize it was going to have a little bit of an asterisk by it. So I'm in in business school. Uh, my first year, I decided to join the bourbon tasting club uh, there at, at Vanderbilt. We go to this event one evening and they start talking about background behind bourbon and and things that were, were fairly new to me now that now has kind of become tattooed on the back of my eyelids as I tell people. But, you know, the got to be majority corn, be made in the United States, new charred oak barrels, all that fun stuff. Um, but then they got into the history. One thing that I found interesting was, you know, the farmers, when they would distill this grain down, they'd put it in the barrels and uh, what they didn't keep on the farm, they would send to market. And if you're in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, and you've got a 500-pound barrel, uh, how are you going to get it to anybody? Yeah, you're not going to just put 20 of these on the back of your your, your horse. You know, being on the river, they actually had great distribution because they were able to just put these barrels on the flatboats. The, the spring rains would come, the river would rise, the flatboats would launch and then make their trek down the Mississippi River, down the Ohio to the Mississippi, and eventually get down to New Orleans. Once they got down to New Orleans, they made their way into Bourbon Street. People started asking for that whiskey they sell on, on Bourbon Street. And, uh, you know, the, the two kind of married together there. The story really piqued my interest. Being in the barge industry, uh, we ship things from Kentucky all the time. I thought, well, why can't we do that with whiskey if back in the old days it had this you know, effect that made the whiskey taste better when it got down there uh, and, and people wanted more of it. Why why couldn't that be something that holds true today? And that was the genesis of the idea. And what did it take at that point? Because you're like, all right, I'm in business school. At that point, you don't even have the MBA yet. You're just studying for it. This has probably been in the back of your mind. Did you start it before you graduated from Vandy or was this something that happened after? Uh, well, I was fortunate. I took a class um, called Launching the Venture where you brought an idea in. Everybody in the class had to pitch an idea. And if your idea was chosen of one of the, the top eight or so, you became the CEO and you hired your classmates as as your coworkers and build out a business plan. In this class, uh, I was one of the, the few selected and brought a team together and we started to build a business plan. So did the professor choose or was it your fellow students that chose? 
the class had about 40 people in it or so, and the professor was the one that chose his favorite eight ideas. So do you think the professor was thirsty, or do you think the professor thought this was like a really good idea? I think he was uh, more into wine, actually, at the time, but uh, he was open to the idea. <laughs> and there was some really good things uh, that, that came out of the class. There were some that weren't so good. I, I won't even go in, into some of those ideas in case some of them are listening. Fast forward to I'm, I'm now trying to build out this business plan. Uh, I've got to come up with financials, a marketing plan, all this sort of stuff. So I start calling on my friends and family and start asking them and, and getting connections in the industry and talking to people. And uh, my godfather is actually uh, in the distribution world. So I went up to him and I, I was I was talking about it. And my, my dad had actually talked to him before and said, my son's got this crazy idea. Can you talk him out of it? And <laughs> I, uh, I I talked to him for so long and and, and talked through all the, the, the problems he threw at me that he was like, well, well damn it, I might have to put some money behind that. <laughs> so was it a point that you had to kind of go through with it to get an A in the class at that point? Like, did you have to get it off the ground? So your dad... Hey, Dad, I kind of got to do this. Well, thankfully, the class was only eight weeks, and so it was really more theoretical. Okay. That became evidently clear as as I got in the operational side of this, how theoretically it, it, it was, because it looks so simple on a spreadsheet. I'm going to start this thing, I'm going to forecast my costs, forecast my, my sales, and then, great, I'm going to go take on this world that I've never been in and try to start a business I know nothing about. And so you had the the godfather, so to speak. The the godfather dropped some knowledge on you and might have dropped some seed capital on you. And then you had to go find more and more and more. And you had to figure out, okay, where the heck do I get barrels from? How do I actually get a license to be able to have a distillery? How do I then work with distributors? How did you figure all of that out? I mean, because you're you're navigating this. You don't have a bunch of fit. Your family did barges. Your your family was also in lumber, which I think is very interesting. And I want to come back to that mm-hmm. point when it comes to And I was also 24. Yeah. So nobody wants to take a 24-year-old serious. We managed that anyway. So I just started by asking questions. What do I have to do to do this? And and luckily, uh, my godfather knew me knew enough to point me in the direction. And then I just kind of started following where the threads would unravel. And you know, where I am now is really, it took a village. I met a gentleman that used to work for him, uh, him being my godfather, who uh, managed some brands. And I asked him, and what do I do? He said, well, you need you know these things here and talk to these people. And, and it was really go talk to these people, go talk to these people. And and I, I did, I kind of sought them out. But the biggest thing was getting the permit. The one thing that I didn't know in business school was to warehouse spirits on a vessel is illegal. So my whole premise um, <laughs> on face value was against the law. And um, I said, aha, we'll see. Well, we sent a, a solicitation email to five or six different lawyers Two didn't respond. Two came back and said, it's illegal. One came back and said, pay me a little bit more and I'll tell you, but it's probably illegal. Uh, And then one guy actually, about three weeks afterwards, uh, he had been at some tax conference and and had not seen the email. And he came back and said, actually, I was just at a tax conference and they were talking about the Supreme Court case where this guy had a floating house. But he, well, the city wanted to say it was a vessel and he had to pay wharfage taxes. And that's why it was at a tax conference. The Supreme Court actually it went all the way up there and they said, well, just because it floats, it's not automatically a vessel. And and it created this precedent that we were able to use. Now, 
They said, but you still owe property taxes. So he, he didn't get out of it completely. But we had this blueprint now to say, well, wait a minute. If we take a barge and do certain things to it and decommission it in a sense, it can't steer. It can't make its own power. Is it a vessel or if the way that we're going to operate it, is it just a floating facility? And and we went down this experimental route. So the code has, you know, there's like 20 different license types. And this one little line says experimental permit. And for the experimental permit, you can essentially apply for this and the agency will go, okay, we waive certain requirements. And you know, the whole point of it is make it easy to experiment. We pursued that in case they came back and said, yeah, it's illegal, but we're willing to give you the opportunity to see if there's anything there. Well, about a year later, they came back and said, yeah, we agree. Your floating facility is not a vessel. Like, Whoa. The letter they wrote to us effectively said, if your experiment works, here's your green light to go operate. And, and so now this was... Uh, really, I, I think the middle of 2000, or maybe it was the, the fall of 2016. So I had already graduated when I got the full permit. And, um, and, and it was like, oh my gosh, here we go. Well, there are so many things that I wanted to follow up with. And these are the types of stories I love because we're sitting here and you're like, oh yeah, you know, sage on the river and your family's in the barge business. But the fact that I didn't know it was illegal, I assumed if you can operate a casino, on the river and a lot of you know riverboat casinos you know it's just a walkway to a floating decommissioned vessel or not a decommissioned vessel because once it's decommissioned it's not a vessel anymore that i just found out but it is a floating facility in which you can gamble well the whole thing with riverboat casinos is it had to be on water because yeah. if it was on shore then it was in a in a jurisdiction that didn't allow gambling but because it had a little water underneath it it was in a gray zone which I don't understand why whiskey would be illegal on there if gambling is not. Like, that that was the first takeaway I had from there. But I think it's interesting because a lot of people in knowing your story, the whiskey really came out last year, I want to say, at least down here in Nashville. It might have been out sooner in Kentucky. But, you know, for all of us knowing the brand, I don't think everybody realized, you know, this has been a seven-year process for you. At 2000. 15 is when I formed the LLC uh, to, to start this. And, you know, I wanted to age everything on the barge. You got to take time. So a lot of this has been behind the scenes. Now, once we ran the experiment, you know, we took a couple barrels, put them on the barge and had a couple barrels at MGP. And <clears throat> what we found was the barrels on the barge after you know, six months or so began to take on a different flavor profile than the barrels at MGP. And I was kind of like, well, there might be something here. Let's go and, and expand this from six barrels effectively to thousands. And that was where it, it, it took a while because we had to transition from, yeah, sure, here's your experimental, you know, rinky-dinky little bond to, okay, now you got to step up to the big boy game. And, and in total, I think it took another year and a half because nobody on the, the regulatory side wanted to touch this thing. You know, <laughs> can, can you imagine you permitted that? What were you thinking? So um, there's a little bit of that, but we kept pointing back to, we have a determination from your office saying, yep, we agree. And we'd always come back to that. And finally, I said, here you go. Here's your permit. Well, I mean, you could put a slot machine in there and maybe that would, you know, do something for them, right? Because well, hopefully you get the gambler. That's, that's serving versus aging, though, right? I mean. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the issue with the vessel is 
Think about it. Barrel of bourbon or whiskey or whatever is a lot of tax revenue. Your casino, they know where to find it. Um, but if you sail off with with that vessel full of, of whiskey and they can't come get their taxes. Oh. I completely get that. They also let Jefferson's go do it in the ocean. Well, there's a difference between a DSP and uh, a bill of lading. Yeah. The, the one thing I will say, though, is MGP2, you know, it's very notorious for being a cement just warehouse. So I think there's a huge change from any time somebody takes a barrel from MGP and puts it in a traditional rick or just exposes it to the elements more, there is a huge difference in how that's going. I mean, typically at MGP, the proof will go down like crazy where that same barrel is aged in Kentucky or Tennessee and it's going to go up. I think part of that's there, but what are you finding now that you've been doing this for a while? What is it about aging on the Mississippi River? You are in Kentucky. You're on kind of that Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, tri-state line. What is that doing aging it in the river opposed to aging it in a traditional rick somewhere else? Sure. Great question. We take our barrels as new fill whiskey. We take them out of the distillery put them on a truck, bring them over to Wycliffe. We being me and, and Scott, who works with me, it's really just the two of us. We bring the barrels to the barge and Scott and I load every single one of them with our little fancy ricker, which was not version one, but version two. Version one was a foot operated hydraulic stacker. Um, and we could load about, I don't know, two barrels every 10 minutes was horrible. <laughs> oh. Screams efficiency. Well, it was not efficient, but it was <laughs> it was less expensive. And uh, I said, you know, any dollar I don't put in a barrel of bourbon is one less thing I got to sell. So especially when you were showed me the picture and there's two thousand barrels of bourbon on there and yeah. and ride two in ten minutes. That's a crap ton of time right there. Yeah, yeah. So we fixed that quickly, mostly because I had a bunch of my friends come out the first day to help me load, and um, after about. Mm, three hours of that, there was a mutiny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they were they were going to hold my bourbon hostage. Pizza and beer did not work in that situation? Well, I told them, I said, guys, we're going to roll barrels and load the barge. They heard, we're going to taste whiskey till we drop. <laughs> so there was a bit of a disconnect. They were like, understandable. You, you didn't leave one open that we could just go thieve as we're going? <laughs> well, what didn't help was my marketing team was there and they're like, well, we need to capture this moment. And so I have seven guys sweating their asses off loading these barrels with this, you know, foot operated hydraulic stacker. Meanwhile, I'm getting, let's put the, um, you know, the, the powder that takes the sweat off your eyes, right to the, do the interview, you know, all right, smile now, now say these words and you know, we're documenting this. And then your buddies are moving. So it's like, Hey, can you actually pull that back and do that yeah, one more time? Hey, can, yeah. We need you to, to roll that one more time. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> You're not paying them us, but you got a movie crew. <laughs> They're like, no, get me on the next one. I'm going to do this same thing again. There's a, a crap ton of barrels here. Don't worry. You'll get it. That's right. But all that being said, what is different? What is so different the about process. So the hypothesis is really three elements, motion, temperature, and humidity. Uh, I think motion is probably the most obvious. Being out there on the river, we get pretty dramatic fluctuations in river level, but we don't get swells. It isn't the ocean where you've got this constant thrashing. It's more of a constant lull. And um, I track on our website the movement of the barge vertically as it travels with the river. And since the beginning of the year, we've moved about 330 feet or so um, just vertically. So, you know, you're getting a lot of up and down on the river. The motion keeps the whiskey moving inside the barrel. It allows the whiskey to you know, be 
stirring around, interact with the wood in a different way. Um, the temperature gets very hot in the daytime, especially in the summer. I think we got up to about 125 Ooh. in our upper rick, mid-90s on the lower rick. But then, you know, it's a single story. It's on the water. The water's pulling heat off the steel, and it gets down to 75 at night. So you got this big temperature swing during the day. That's working the whiskey, working the pours. And third is the humidity. Moisture from the river keeps the barrels moist and and it keeps the sugar inside the wood kind of almost like a molasses consistency, which is interesting because, again, the hypothesis is maybe this allows the the whiskey to extract a little bit more from a moist sugar than a dry sugar. Interesting. You said it was single story on the barge, but how many, I guess, um, how many barrels high does it go? So this one we've designed is six barrels high. Just over 2,000 barrels on it. It's already full, though. So mm-hmm. we're starting to design barge two. And um, that'll hold... T- the final number's not set yet, but 2,500 to 3,000 barrels. So that would be a... And that one that one will maybe go seven barge or go higher? No, it's just <laughs> a different configuration. Okay. But yeah, um, a lot of it, we've we've learned things along the way, too. And so as far as um, building out the, the ricks and the barge, at least from what I or we understand, there's pretty much one company that builds all the rick houses in Kentucky... Do you, do you have the same company? And I, I can't think or remember the name, but music. It's the Muzak. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Somebody here was going to help me. I knew that. Uh, I've, I've talked to those guys. The, the best um, part of being dumb is having good friends around you. Yeah, you that's know, right. That, um, Always helpful. But do you have the same folks doing that or you have, um, I guess, uh, a green or independent? No, I've, I mean, I've, I've talked to them. On our application, because there's movement, we chose to go with steel just because there's different stresses. Um, and quite frankly, uh, we, we can get more from the dollar. Yeah, uh, with a steel rack. Now you you do have to worry about the ventilation and the the, the vapors will actually corrode steel. So you know it's a balancing act, and and we're we're tweaking some things. But I, I talk to everybody that builds things in in the space because I learned all my ideas aren't the aren't the best. <laughs> they, they usually hurt me or or take longer than they should. But there has to be a little bit to it where your family has been building barges. Like yes, you can consult with other people, but. This has been the family business. So it's like, hey, why am I going to go pay somebody else $5 million to build this for me when we do this kind of stuff? all the time. Let's just keep it in house if we can. Yeah, that's that's right. And certainly that that does help um when the opportunity arises. This is a little bit more, I'd say, specialized. Uh we're more used to moving the barge, not dealing so much with what's in it. Certainly kind of that uh, ancestral knowledge of don't put it over here because that's in a bad spot of the river or, um, you know, those sort of things. How you secure it, probably the most important. You know, I get asked a lot, well, what happens if the barge breaks away? Like, well, it's in there so tightly that if it breaks away, then hopefully somebody else has got bigger issues and, and we're not on the front page at least. <laughs> we're all calling Noah. Yeah, that's right. Well, the other question I would have too, I mean, if it breaks away, I hope it ends up finding its way to the Cumberland and eventually to Nashville. But the other thing I would say is, like real estate on the river because it's the river itself and because you have a barge there and you're tying it up to something what is the real estate like like do you have to pay for that spot at that point or is it just kind of open season because as long as you're not in the lanes of traffic that the mississippi would have and that's a 
big river, mm -hmm. can you just kind of park wherever you want? So the Corps of Engineers controls that. Um, the, the, really, it comes down to riparian rights, and you have to have riparian rights first. And, and that's really the access or the ability to use the bank of the river. And um, so if you control that, you being the landowner or, you know, if you're going to, to tie up a barge on a spot, you, you have to have you know, the ability to do that legally. Say that's already taken care of. Then you have to get it permitted for for a barge. Uh, so you can't just go park anywhere. On that part of the river, it's it's pretty easy. When you get to, uh, like, say, Chicago, for instance, the Illinois River, that's pretty hot real estate. There's not a lot of free space. I mean, I thought this was America, but what do I know? Well, it, again, it goes back to floating facility versus uh, vessel. It begs the question, though, what I would will say, all joking aside, knowing that there are you know regulations that you need to go through. <laughs> I was totally kidding. But is there something to be said for maybe eventually expanding the brand where you have different rivers aging your spirits? So like this release might be the Mississippi, but this one might be the Colorado. This one might might be, you know, the Tennessee River. So like you have these different places and if you get permitted there, you're an NDP for the time being. I don't know if you have any plans for eventually distilling and becoming a DSP as well, but is there flexibility then to maybe do some different rivers and see what the different climates do to the whiskey? It's certainly something that we've considered. Um, you know, down the road, New Orleans uh, has a different environment than, say, Minneapolis, but they're both on the Mississippi River. We could play around with that. Um, you know, right now, I think there's just so many variables that we can we can deal with in, in our one and a half barges that uh, most of the focus, at least for the foreseeable future, is on Wycliffe. And obviously, you got to crawl before you run. Yeah. You know, maybe it's like a mini barge where it's like, hey, we're, we're taking those six barrels like you did before. Like the 15-gallon equivalent of a barge. Yeah. <laughs> and and hopefully keeping them in 53 gallons, but it's like, yeah, it's, this is our experimental barge. The the government said in the letter, it's okay. This is uh, the one that we're going to put up in Minneapolis, and we're going to put one in New Orleans. And, and patent pending, we're the only one that can do it. And you could just like do a fake front to it so nobody knows it's whiskey. Like you could just paint something else on the. Oh, they're going to know it's whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the summertime, especially, it, it just gets too hot. And uh, the barge uh, had a white lid on top of it when we started this thing. It's now completely black. Where we keep the barges actually at a shipyard. And uh, one of the guys that works there is like, hey, man, I'll get up there with a scrub brush. Can I just clean that damn thing? I said, don't you touch it. That is a sign of pride that I've got my own whiskey fungus now. <laughs> well, plus, I don't think anything carries. Aroma quite like water can. Yeah. It's weird to think of in that sense. I can't think of anything else where it just, if you're downstream, you just pick it up even there's no wind. Like you can just stay there. I don't know. It's some weird intangible. I can't really explain it. All that water is the low spot usually, right? So <laughs> yeah. vapor likes to find low spots. I guess inevitably as you guys you know, kick this thing off and, and got to moving and progressing forward and finally got the permits and like the, the green lights to go with it, I would assume at some point kind of ran into the inevitable question of, all right, well, we can finally do the damn thing. Where are we going to get the whiskey? So how did that, I guess, originate, progress through, and, and kind of where is it now, I guess, is a sure. three-tiered three question, I guess. So when we started- Three-tier question, by the way. Sorry, that was uh, that was very well done. 
I had to think about it in my own head. Let's be honest. You don't do that too often. I, w- I was also going to say like the intangible thing, that is you. But that's a whole other story. Sorry, Hank, for <laughs> interrupting you. We started out with uh, with MGP, quite frankly, because that was who one of the people I talked to early on had a relationship with. No family background in, in, in whiskey and, and distilling. So I heard, oh, I can get whiskey from these folks. Great. And, and we can start and build the brand and then kind of go from there. So all of our initial batches are MGP and um, everything that we're putting down really the last two years now has been Green River uh, over in Owensboro. Well, so the, the what we're buying now is you know a mash bill that we've chosen. So we're now buying enough whiskey that early on it was, I'll take 20 barrels of this, I'll take 50 barrels of that. Now it's like, okay, great. I can actually have my own run, which is it's, it's really a cool thing when you can say, yeah, they made that barrel for me. And, you know, I get asked a lot, when are you going to open up your distillery? And it's like, well, you know, you could make whiskey in five days. To really make good age bourbon takes years. And and that's really where I want to affect the process is on that art form of the blending and the aging on the back end. For the foreseeable future... We're just going to be river. Well, I think a lot of it, too, is supply chain. And you think about NDPs right now. It's the NDPs that have long-term sources for their whiskey. And if they have new make deals and they're at least getting stuff and have a plan for five, ten years down the line, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be the one to distill it yourself. You just have to have access to a product in a contract that isn't going to increase on you, which in turn then makes your product unprofitable. So I think that's the thing. Like when people ask you that, it's not a big deal if you're doing it or if you're contracting somebody to do it for you. It's just like, listen, like in any business plan, I have my one, three, five, 10 year goals. I have a plan. I have contracts in place. Does it really matter if we're sitting behind a still or am I still? cutting down on overhead because it's me and my buddy that can actually move the stuff around, load the barge, get it all out. Like I don't need a staff of the amount of people it would take to actually run a distillery. Yeah. It's quite a labor intensive business. So I'm able to do what I do with me and one other person, right? So we've got kind of a a team that uh, helps us on the, the marketing and a team that helps us on the PR. It's easy. I don't have to you know, worry about plant breakdown issues or, you know, a condenser coil or something. Uh, <laughs> I, I do have to worry about, uh, you know, keeping river rats off my barge. Is that a problem? Thankfully, it hasn't been yet. But, uh, you know, when there's that much whiskey, I'm sure somebody's going to try something at some point. But so unless you, you got a welding torch, it's pretty secure. When you say river rats, are you talking about people that sneak onto the barge? Or are you talking about an actual rat? Oh no, I'm talking about people. Oh, okay. that's what we call them in the in the industry. Boy, I got Zeke really laughing here, but I was like, "Shit, that's gonna be a drunk rat." I, I equate river rat to modern day pirate, river pirate. I do think it's definitely more advantageous to have a a contract in place with you know a unique mash bill as well versus you know sourcing and I guess. To probably a larger degree being at the mercy of you know what's available at a certain time or the market or um, you know from brokers etc well that's why we do it do new fill um, the whole idea here is this is fully barge aged river aged out there for, for for years not simply to be what can we find that's available put it on our on our barge and and you know have it there for a few months and then say hey we aged it on the river I guess I just um not to contradict myself, but 
inevitably always overthinking things to a degree. Do you wonder at any point with being, I guess, not locked in, but having one mash bill contract distilled, the aging process occurs at some point, um, you know, as we, or you talked about earlier, as far as the, the magic to a degree being in the blending, you know, putting profiles together. Do you ever wonder what if we had a different source for the same mash bill or a different mash or just some other curve we can throw in here to to tinker or augment what we're working with as a blend to help give it some layer in some other direction or you know not to go out too much detail but obviously just to to change your flavor profile dynamic etc certainly i think looking at you know, can we do an expression with so-and-so and then do an expression with, you know, this other company? Um, it's something that we're, we're open to, you know, it, it, it just, it's kind of opportunistic as it, as it comes up and, and as we make relationships and have those conversations. I mean, I, I, and obviously there's no right or wrong. I think it's one of those things where you just kind of see it more with, you know, younger and newer companies where you just kind of have that mentality of, uh, you know, the world being your oyster to a degree and, and having opportunity galore versus beam or heaven hill. Yeah. They made the same one mash bill, one bourbon for God knows how long sold more than anybody else will ever sell at this point. They're just going to keep doing it. And they don't yeah. give two shits. Well, you know, the nice- but, uh, <laughs> and, and not to answer for you, but to jump in for a second, because Zeke, I would say I, I kind of get your question. I kind of don't like his flagship bourbon, which we're talking about tonight that just was released. And then he has a straight rye whiskey, the 98 proof, the red label. And then there was another, was it a black label? Uh, the the white label. The so white label whiskey. was the straight whiskey that came out. That was the blend of the, the rise. Mm-hmm. And so the flagship, I would worry that if you do the same mash bill at, at multiple distilleries, that yeast is going to be so different that it would have a different profile. So if you're trying to keep something consistent, you're going to want to keep everything kind of at one distillery. Well, actually, that's a great segue into the flagship because um, I don't intend for the flagship, at least initially, um, to be the same consistent thing every year. The idea behind the flagship is this is going to be our opportunity to to explore the creativity inside the barge by taking our favorite barrels and mixing them in a way that we think is the best representation of what our brand can do. And so, you know, I, I was thinking of reserve and, and select and those things are so common in the space. You know, what's something that's authentic to this kind of brand. And yeah. I was actually talking to one of the guys uh, on the on one of the towboats and he said, well, heck, you know, flagship's the best boat you got in the, in the fleet. <laughs> I was like, well, that's great. We have a fleet of whiskeys and uh, the Black Label's going to be our flagship. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's not like I'm trying to imply a right or wrong. Certainly, I just... Um, well, it, I, I, we're I, so small that even if we do change something, you know, if we piss off anybody, you know, we got a whole lot of other people we haven't sold to yet than the people that we pissed off. So, you oh, know, I'm not afraid to, to try new things. I, I just take it or try to see the perspective of, you know, the age, coming up with the business plan, all these other just completely novel concepts. To a degree, I just have to assume that a lot of times late at night, the wheels just spin like, oh, what if we thought about that? What if we thought about that? So it's not trying to pick your brain, but, you know, just wondering, like, 
what other avenues do you see uh, on the forefront? Well, you know, funny <laughs> enough, where, where I started out was mostly focusing on the process, aging it on the barge, getting all of that up and running. I really forgot to create a brand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I oh, it's easy to see. I mean, that's a lot of damn work. I'm yeah, sure. well, I, you know, I, I was like, oh man, this is gonna be great. We're gonna create great whiskey, and people are like, I think somebody asked me, said, what are you gonna call it? I said, Ew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so, so now my wheels actually are turning on the branding side because you know, how do we tell the story of what we're trying to do? And that's where I get more in trouble is, you know, what if we tweak this? Well, what if we did this on the package, or you know, what if we did this kind of activation? And I think. For a, a young business that has restraints on, on or constraints on capital, restraint is necessary. And you know, I think the death of an entrepreneur is trying to do too many things, you know, chase too many sh- oh, bright, shiny objects. Yeah, so, I wasn't trying to imply that. I just, again, I, I, I'm sure the wheels have to spin at night. Oh, so oh, they I spin. always ask, like, they all spin. right, well, what, if you've got 18 thoughts, what are the one or two you think might actually uh And after a, come a couple glasses of flagship, other things spin too. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fun, though. You know, you're like, all right, I got to write this down because tomorrow I might not remember it. And the next day you're like, hold on. All right, that's not a good idea. And I get that there's an aspect of you're kind of figuring out, you're kind of figuring it out as you go. But eventually I have to think you're already kind of there. You're like, all right, the flagship is going to be whatever the flagship is every year. I think eventually you'll probably end up adding something that denotes its limited edition on there because are you going to keep the flagship to a certain like number of bottles every year if you think about it, it's your big allocated release every year that's right um yeah this one has 2021 on there uh which i said okay great this is 2021 because i haven't even thought about 2022 yet you know i i think we will part of where my brand aesthetic goes just in my head is keep it simple, keep it clean. I think some brands maybe reveal more than is ultimately necessary. And I know the consumer likes that, but I want to keep a little mystery still. I haven't decided what that mystery is because I pretty much told everybody my secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think there's secrets of how you blend and what, you know, people don't want to be deceived as to what the whiskey is that's in there. Now, granted, we know legally sometimes there's NDAs when you get certain whiskey and you can't necessarily say what's in it and you, you can't say as much as you want to. But we're also, I say this all the time on the podcast, we also know we're the 1%. 99% of the people that go into a liquor store, they're going to go, oh, this looks cool. It was aged on a, a river and let me try this out. Well, we're going to sit there and you get the people that are on Instagram and Facebook and all that other stuff. They're like, I want to know the breakdown of the percentages of each mash bill that you put in here. And then we're going to have a discussion and say, all right, he had five-year-old that was a 36% rye, and that was 60% of the blend. And then he had a four-year-old that was a 21% rye, and it was this much, you know, like... We're going to sit there and dissect it that way. There, There's a difference between that 1% and the 99%. And we also realize that the 1% does not keep your brand afloat alone, right? Like nobody's going to walk in and be like, I bought a case of Ingram and that means that uh, you owe me. You know, at the same time, it's good to have some of that stuff out there because people then get into legitimate conversations around the table like we are now about your whiskey and about 
I wonder if he tweaks it a little bit this way, what it would actually do. And then maybe somebody's sending you a sample of something that they blended up. Like, hey, have you ever tried doing it this way? Or that is the fun of the whiskey community. I think sometimes if you don't tell enough, you lose some of that you know conversation that you can build with some of those one percenters. At the same time, it's not going to probably make a huge difference on your brand from the people that are going to the liquor store and checking it out at the end of the day. There are ways to create things that are interesting for the one percenters that are, are maybe different than what they've had to look at before. I mean, if all of the whiskey in your cabinet was aged in a rickhouse in Kentucky, how truly different can it be? Because then you got to go to, okay, well, you know, what about the mash bill percentage, this, that, that. What we're trying to do is also create a stable of other data points that people haven't thought about. And um, we actually put those up on the website. Currently, it's just the the hydrograph. It's the rise and fall of the river. Down the road, I'd like to show temperature and humidity. And, and so folks can go on and actually see that. I don't know any other brand that's putting their average temperature on the back of the, the label. So, you know, I, we're going to create new things to talk about because we have the ability to do so. I think, you know, digging into percentage of this, percentage of that, that's great and all, but I want to bring some new elements that haven't been discussed before. And I think the recipe helps, you know, from a Mashville standpoint to know, okay, if it tingles in the front a little bit, I know it's a higher rye. If it, you know, like there's certain things that when you're going through tasting notes, it helps there. I think the interesting thing is even though it is no longer a vessel and it is a floating facility, you can also talk about the distance traveled. So if you know it's gone up 330 feet, this whole year like you have the distance traveled from the time that barrel actually set foot on the the facility to when it was bottled as how long its journey was distance it might not have ever moved it just kind of went up and down i'm using the term relative movement how, how about acceleration <laughs> that's that's i was, uh, gonna say, I, I, I was like i'm like hank's gonna jump in with some word that sounds better than both of us but i'm like Distance-wise, I mean, it's like you in a treadmill. You, you didn't go anywhere. But there is a distance that is tracked on a treadmill, even though you're not going anywhere. Like, it says distance on the treadmill. You tumble like when you stand there and it runs and your feet are on the side? No. What are you doing? Are, are you going to the gym at all? Are you running anymore? You used to run all the time. What happened to you? It's hot outside, man. You got a little pooch now. You got to get that fixed. Please. Dad bod's drinking bourbon? <laughs> You have something to look forward to. Yeah, all right. Uh, the more bourbon you drink, the more you look like us. It has nothing to do with being a dad. It's just like, hey, bourbon's good. And all of a sudden you look down and you're like, goo, what happened? That's not the beer belly anymore. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be something. I and mean, That is an interesting way of looking at it that I don't think everybody necessarily looks at. I think the distilleries look at it. I think they're, I mean, look at what Buffalo Trace does in their experimental warehouse where they're tracking all that kind of stuff and like what average temperature and humidity is actually going to do to the angel share and how much loss. It's almost like you can get predictive analytics. If you know what the temperature is going to be like, you can actually kind of predict how much you're going to have when all is said and done better than some of the other people. 
I want to talk about this whiskey a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about the juice. We've all uh, enjoyed it the entire time. I don't think we divulged that, but we've all made it through a, a dram of both the rye and the, the flagship at this point, I think. And you and I have talked about the rye before. I just want to ask, though, what is, because this is not a 95.5. I know you're you're keeping things close to the chest, but what is the mash bill on this rye, if you don't mind? Remember how I said I was bad at secrets? <laughs> <laughs> So this is a 51% rye, 45% corn. Do you know how much barley is left then, about Zeke? Four. Yeah, about or four exactly. I mean, I assume it's like anything else and the government gives you a, a fair wavering, like a little known fact, pharmaceuticals, you have 10% of stated potency on each side of the coin and it can still be a valid product. Learn something new every day. There you go. And so what is the bourbon? Uh, it's the 21% rye. All right, so the low rye mash bill at MGP, got it. Zeke, we talked about the rye already. I I love this one because you know anytime it's on 95.5 and I can get some other notes on there besides the wintergreen, the mint, I'm 100% in. I love, it's the same thing about the bourbon for me on both of these is there's a fair amount of bacon spice, almost kind of like a cookie component to it, like a, a snickerdoodle cookie to me on the taste of both of them as a bigger guy i really like both of them for that reason i'm just kicking it off to so you're doing notes on both at once and really confusing the shit out of people no just you but i i just I love you know, snickerdoodle it's kind of i mean at this point we're an hour in so i'm generalizing a little bit of this but i i mean i think if we were to focus on something zeke focus on the bourbon because we've already focused on the rye so you asked me for notes on bourbon. Thought it had a good, light caramel note, nice richness to it. The rye followed in on the backside. The rye held really well, and I thought it was unique in the sense of the rye spice held on the palate uh, for a good two or three count, but it didn't progress into a Kentucky hug. Some people prefer that when they think of you know a rye component. I would prefer to have it hang around and, and get the sugars and that kind of um, almost tacky or starchy aspect where the flavor stays on my tongue and doesn't burn in my chest. I could see that, but I also think at 100 proof, it's a super easy sipper. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where I was going. Like, it, it's all palate, not like, huh. you have to you know give it the Conan <laughs> three taps in the chest kind of move because you get the rye Kentucky hug that folks, even when it's not a Kentucky product, seem to want sometimes. I, I don't know. I, to me, I equate that to like shooting or chugging whiskey. It's not enjoying. I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> Great. You, 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 you drank some shit too. Was it any good? I don't know, but I'm a man. Yeah, I think that's part of the, the motion of the barge. You know, that charcoal is working like a filter and it's pulling out some of those compounds that, that, that give you that, that hug. So and across all of our products... Um, even the hotter you go with them on on the proof, they just get even smoother on the back end. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. Now, they'll be interesting, especially, I mean, as awkward as it sounds, but data set. That's what everyone loves and wants to mine. But as you, you see what fluctuations and, and things with that and what nuances you can get from just, I mean, what is it, the um, the black and stuff where they're in three chord. I mean, they're both. They're changing whiskey by, you know, sound notes and that simple vibration moving a barrel. It's kind of, to me, it's one of the things where like once there's smoke and then there's fire. Well, you know, there might be some merit to this here. You, you know, multiple places are doing it. They're seeing fluctuations and changes. They're, they're creating different profiles with some have their own novel whiskeys. Some have 
stuff everyone else does, but either way, everyone seems to be getting a unique profile or profiles out of it. So it, it seems more and more relevant to me as we, you know, whiskey expands and you see new things coming out of folks and, you know, different ways of, of thinking and approaching something. It's just got to be the movement though, right? And because that's what they're doing. They're essentially moving the whiskey through music and those sound waves. I almost kind of equate it to like that scene in Jurassic Park where the, the T-Rex is coming and you see the ripples going out in the water. And that's kind of what you all are doing on the the barge but i just think it's more of a slow agitation rather than the pulsating of the music right that's right so how does that work where the music's really churning it up almost like a blender i mean you got master of puppets playing to some willet barrels i mean that stuff's moving pretty quick it's not and and like you said it's not like you're getting rolling Their neighbors gotta hate them though <laughs> well, it's I mean, like, you ma- turn the music down it's four in the morning uh, I, I, in my own head i think of it as like bass versus electric guitar or drums that bass oh that's like the a, worst well but i, I think you, all, that's I, all you hear you know you're two miles away and you're what, what the hell are they doing over there well no oh. and it's that double bass drum it's that oh no but i, I would think of the <laughs> I, I think like a bass guitar like the riverboat oh, yeah. like it's just slow subtle and deep movements yeah. whereas like other things are more rapidly changing. Like your, your variable floats a lot more, I guess. I would think. Yeah. Well, and, and if you think about over a five-year period of time, I don't need this thing to be. I, just, oh, yeah. I kind of need it to be more. You know, da, 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 more of a waltz, right? You know, it's yeah. it's five-year waltz. I'd be tired. Stupid question. I just hope Zeke's ready for it because I've asked a lot of stupid questions. It's not as bad as river rats, but as boats go by and other barges go by, how much give is there in your barge where is that actually going to affect it when those other boats go by? I mean, is it oh, going to yeah. give it? So so maybe that's what's doing it like the music would like that's that faster movement rather than you know hey the river level is moving 330 feet it's more it's getting shook multiple times a day when the boats go by well i think the boats going by has something to do with it but you also have to it's a half a mile wide where we are with a you know, five mile an hour current that's a lot of water going past and and it's got a force and so what's happening is, is you have just a massive amount of water moving past you. As it does, the, the water's got energy to it. And so the barge isn't just, you know, sitting there like it, it would on a lake. Um, and if we do have a, a storm come up out of the, out of the uh, west, you know, it's wide enough there that the wind will whip up some, some chop to it. So, you know, you, you watch the, the, the river go by at the barge and you'd be like, yeah, I don't want to swim that. <laughs> Um, and, and, and that's certainly, uh, you know, part of it. I think the up and down is more of a visual representation of the water that's moving through there, but just the motion of the river is, is, is plenty. When the boats come past, you know, they whip up a pretty good and, you know, we, we're rocking around, uh, you know, you've got about, uh, that many barrels, I think it's around 700 tons or so of, of whiskey that's bouncing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, again, you know, like a cruise ship on the ocean, you know, in a, in a hurricane, but it's, it's a, it's a fair amount of bounce. Is that another reason why you use the steel opposed to a wooden rig? Yeah. And everything is, is locked into place because we do have barrels that will shift, especially if a, a, you know, a, a boat 
9,000 horsepower pushing 40 barges northbound. And for the tow boaters that are listening, and, and if I got those exact figures wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I have gotten corrected before on how many nautical miles versus how many river miles between one destination. They are different uh, between two points on the river. Um, so, you know, that comes by. You're, 40 barges um, is about like three acres of land moving past your barge with one towboat. So they're displacing a lot of river and all those waves are coming up against and, and they're not shallow waves on top. They are deep waves. And so that barge is rocking. So I feel like that wasn't as stupid of a question as I was, I was scared for a second. I'm glad that worked out. The other thing I was going to say, and I know we're, we're deep into this and we are going to have to wrap up at some point, but your family was also in the lumber business. And I don't know how far back that was. I think it was your grandfather, but thinking about cooperages and things like that, I mean, there's also a history there as well. Or you, you at least have something you can tap into. Do you think you'll ever get to the point where you kind of use that knowledge and, and go after the wood a little bit and maybe design your own barrels instead of going to, you know, especially with the new make stuff you have, like, hey, we want to use these specific barrels. Is that an area you'll dig into, question more, and maybe uh, have some different input in? Absolutely. So, um, it was actually my great 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 grandfather. I got that wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> in in the eighteen sixties. Never mind. You can't really tap there. That well, I, I was bound to have a good stupid question here. Sorry. Well, so actually, he, he was the first Orrin Henry Ingram. Then his grandson was Orrin Henry Ingram. Uh, his uh, grandson was Orrin Henry Ingram, and then his son was Orrin Henry Ingram, and that's me. For some reason, I think my grandmother thought that naming my dad the third was too high. So he's the second and I'm the third, even though there was no junior. So it, it's kind of weird. It's a long way to say he was the first member of my family to, to kind of start where we are today, start this journey. He was orphaned as a kid and and went to go work in these different sawmills, was tenacious and, and, and bright, wound up actually with some new inventions of his own, failed to patent them. You know, some of the things he regretted, but by the time he died, he, he had a very large um, kind of lumber business. And in fact, one of the businesses that he invested in early on, uh, Warehouser, is still here today. And um, I've actually talked to several of the barrel makers. The, the issue is, until we're buying thousands of barrels, it's difficult for them to say, we're going to change our sourcing to go, speaking of supply chain, you know, to this producer over here. But you know, my my hope would be that hopefully someday I can produce enough whiskey. Um, my hope would be that someday I produce enough whiskey to be able to actually use some lumber from the company my great, great, great grandfather, you know, helped establish. That would be really cool. Full circle. Speaking of full circle, we, uh, I know we didn't talk about the whiskey enough and Zeke's probably mad at me for that, but I, how much is it? Where is it? What states are you in? I know you're here in Tennessee and Nashville. Uh, where can people find Ingram? So right now we are in Tennessee and Kentucky, and we're in the process of launching Louisiana. So we're following the Mississippi River. Our products are also available on Sealbox on the website there. Um, the flagship, however, is very limited in its distribution. It is only available in select stores in Tennessee and Kentucky. Um, we only had about 2,000 bottles of this one. Between the select stores that we've launched, half of that's gone already in you know, two months' time. And uh, at a $99 price point, <clears throat> as I said, this is meant to be the best 
showcase of what our brand can do. It's going to be every year, our best barrels hand-selected and curated for uh, for our, our, our aficionados. Fair enough. I, I think there's more that we will talk about. I think we'll have you on again. Why don't we do it from the barge? Let's do it. Let's go up to the... You want to go up to the barge? Is this explosion proof? Yes. Good. Only if I can uh, (laughs) possibly punt John into the river. I know. He's mad at me tonight. It's okay. I just wanted to be like... I've got an extra size life vest. I think it'll work. We can can see how far he makes it. (laughs) We tell him, look at that in the river. He (laughs) leans over inevitably, then drop kick. Bam. Be like Tommy Boy when he's on the airplane. He opens the life vest. Yeah. (laughs) I, I'm, or is that I'm, Black Sheep? I'm no, just, no, it's Tommy Boy because he's on there with um, David Spade and David goes in the bathroom and changes real fast. Yeah, it's when they are going to... Oh, no, it, it was... Um, it, it was Black Sheep. Black Sheep. <laughs> it was Black Sheep. <laughs> Dang it. That David Spade's in both movies, isn't he? <laughs> he's a big dumb animal, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's that's the quote after that. Either way, I, I've got my dropkick skills pre-dialed in. I'm ready. Bring it. But no, Hank, thank you so much. I know people can find it. Uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Sealbox. Uh, go check out O.H. Ingram River Aged Whiskey. Their flagship is out for 2021. You can get the red label rye, which is 98 proof. We didn't talk enough about that, but good stuff as well. And you know, I always love those Kentucky ryes, but you can find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dad's, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us wherever you download your podcasts you already have. So leave us an open and honest review, just like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. We thank Hank again, because we know we just touched the surface and we could probably talk about this for another two hours. So it's my bedtime, so thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for coming on. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Good old Music City, U.S. of A. Cheers. Ciao.